Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and in this episode we're going to be talking about drug-induced sleep endoscopy with Dr. Eric Kazirian who is uh, board certified in otolaryngology as well as sleep medicine and uh, of particular relevance to today's episode is someone that really has tremendously contributed to this topic um, over his career. And so Dr. Kazirian, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we get too much into the nuts and bolts of drug-induced sleep uh, endoscopy, I wanted to first just cover some background on the procedure and why it's done and whatnot. So could we start off by talking just basically what is drug-induced sleep endoscopy? So drug-induced sleep endoscopy is endoscopy. So it's fiber optic, usually flexible fiber optic examination of the pharynx of the throat under sedation. So it's drug-induced, but it's done in a way to as closely as we can reasonably mirror natural sleep. So it's drug-induced because of sedation, but it's sleep. It's not just giving sedation in a haphazard way, but the idea is that you perform endoscopy of the throat to basically look at the areas that are causing the obstructive sleep apnea, what structures are physically blocking the airway, and identifying them as a you know, precursor to treatments, and not just including surgery, actually, but also including oral appliances or mandibular advancement devices. And the idea behind it is that we want to understand what the anatomic cause is of obstructive sleep apnea and potentially see the role of specific treatments through different maneuvers we can perform during drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And just building off that, when we think clinically, um, and you're seeing a patient with obstructive sleep apnea, what, what are the clinical scenarios in which you kind of think to yourself, this would be a good time to go down the pathway of drug-induced sleep endoscopy? Well, sure. First and foremost, I think even though we are surgeons and we often think about potential surgical treatment for someone with obstructive sleep apnea, the frontline treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is absolutely positive airway pressure therapy. There are some patients that can consider oral appliances as a first-line option, and that can do very well. But I actually think they have a little bit more in the way of potential side effects than positive airway pressure therapy does, which is why I always use positive airway pressure therapy first. And it's for those patients that do not tolerate, do not respond well to positive airway pressure therapy. That's when I start thinking about other options, including surgery and oral appliances. And that's when drug-induced sleep endoscopy can come into the picture. There certainly are many patients for whom it's almost obvious what the cause might be, especially, for example, if they have marked palatine tonsillar hypertrophy, like those three plus and four plus tonsils. Those are patients who generally are going to do really well with a surgery that takes out those tonsils and potentially including some component of palate surgery added to that. There are some cases, of course, where they may need other things done at the same time. But for those patients, drug-induced sleep endoscopy may not be that helpful because it's not probably going to change your management dramatically. And of course, you know, when you look in the airway, you, you might just end up seeing these huge tonsils there. So it might not be such a, you know, informative evaluation anyway. But, but I think about drug-induced sleep endoscopy, and I perform it in about, I'd say, half of my patients uh, undergoing sleep apnea surgery, where I really think that it may change what I would recommend and potentially what the patient would want to undergo as far as treatment. And so I think it has a real role as an evaluation procedure and sort of getting a little better handle on the diagnosis 
in terms of the anatomic uh, features of their sleep apnea, anatomic causes of their sleep apnea that you would address potentially with surgery or even oral appliances. And I, I know historically there's kind of been an evolution to where we are today in terms of using drug-induced uh, sleep endoscopy, initially evolving even from things like using the Mueller maneuver and, and things like that. Can you touch on a little bit about kind of how we got here in terms of just recognizing the variation in surgical out- outcomes reported in the literature and um, just kind of the role of drug-induced sleep endoscopy in that context? Sure. I mean, the first option as far as treatment for obstructive sleep apnea was actually surgery, being tracheotomy. Now, that's not the most common <laughs> treatment for obstructive sleep apnea anymore, but as you have the development of positive airway pressure therapy and uvula pallidopharyngoplasty, uh, it was pretty much you had a couple of options. There wasn't really much to choose from, and things could work, of course, but you really were a little bit limited. But over the last few decades, and it's certainly been part of my career, is I've seen this growth in the array of options that you have available for patients. And I think that drug-induced sleep endoscopy will help you, can help you choose from among them uh, because no single option really has emerged as the best you know, procedure for everyone in that you have different patients and the studies that are published looking at individual procedures or potential combinations of procedures, they have results that are sort of all over the place, to be honest. And you'll have the same procedure or even combination of procedures performed in a group of 30 patients in one study, another group of 30 to 50 patients in another study, and the results will be completely different. And from really one of the things that motivated me to go into sleep surgery in the first place, and certainly motivated me to think about you know, examining drug-induced sleep endoscopy, was that we were pretty limited in terms of the evaluation techniques that we had to try to distill the reasons why some patients, individual patients, and even groups of patients respond very well to procedures or procedure combinations, whereas another group of patients would respond very poorly. And I think it's not necessarily a surgeon having a good day or a bad day in terms of explaining why someone might respond well to a procedure and someone else might not. It has to do more with the underlying factors that are contributing to the sleep apnea in the first place. And I think drug and sleep endoscopy is one of many evaluation techniques that have tried to, to sort this out. And the challenge has been that most of the evaluation techniques that are out there, you mentioned the Friedman staging, which I think is very helpful for picking out those patients often with the very large tonsils that might do very well with a, a specific procedure. But we have other things that haven't really shown to guide us, uh, to be, I guess, useful guides for us when we're thinking about procedures, such as the Mueller maneuver, such as just looking at sleep apnea severity. People, for example, have proposed that you take the apnea hypopnea index and, well, if it's only mild to moderate sleep apnea, that's probably just the palate. So let's just give, give it a go, look at the palate. And if it's much worse sleep apnea, moderate to severe, oh, they probably need a combination of procedures. But that really hasn't panned out to be all that helpful in guiding selection of procedures or in predicting outcomes, to be honest. And transitioning now a little bit more to the actual technique um, for drug-induced sleep endoscopy, how do we replicate sleep um, to get an accurate assessment of kind of what patients' natural sleep is like? Well, the ideal thing would be to do this during natural sleep. And in fact, there were a couple of studies done in the late 70s and early 80s that did this. And then actually it's been revisited with a couple of more recent studies, primarily in research settings, so not really in clinical settings for, for broad adoption. But people are trying to perform endoscopy while patients are naturally sleeping. And it would really be nice if that were 
were straightforward. But as you can imagine, it was difficult for people to fall asleep uh, comfortably with, you know, flexible scope in their nose. And then, of course, if you're looking at different parts of the pharynx, you're moving the scope around. All those things can be fairly stimulating to patients if they're trying to sleep naturally. And so the idea behind drug-induced sleep endoscopy, which was first uh, developed in Europe in the late 80s and, and into the early 90s, but described in 1991, uh, was to give people some sedation and try to see if that can allow them to be in this state of sedation, drowsiness, while spontaneously breathing, but reproducing something close to a natural sleep in order for a surgeon to visualize the area of obstruction. And in terms of getting at what is uh, you know, sedation, where are we getting in terms of replicating sleep? It's a very... Uh, difficult question to answer because there's so many things that happen in sleep. Of course, there's neurologic changes. EEG patterns are very different during sleep versus wakefulness. But I think from a surgical standpoint, what really matters is what's happening in the throat and what's happening with the decrease in muscle tone, the, what's called the loss of the wakefulness stimulus and, and generalized decrease in muscle tone that occurs during sleep, especially during rapid eye movement sleep. And so the most detailed studies that have been done looking at sedation and reproducing changes in the pharynx that are similar to natural sleep have been related to propofol. And that's the medication I use when I perform drug-induced sleep endoscopy. It's probably the one that you see most commonly uh, around the world, either on its own or sometimes in combination with low doses of midazolam. But the idea behind propofol and, and the reason why I've found it more compelling to use it is that the, the best work is a study done out of Australia showing that muscle tone and other measures of physiology in the pharynx are somewhat in the range of natural REM and non-REM sleep. So it's not natural sleep, certainly. And actually the, the EEG activity is different because propofol affects uh, waveforms. And so you are not getting the same waveforms that you get during natural sleep. But I think the most important thing is what's happening in the pharynx and this study which was very you know, detailed, only nine study subjects actually, but uh, very detailed, showed that you had some of the same changes you see during natural sleep that, that are occurring uh, with propofol sedation at what's called the transition to unconsciousness. Basically, people no longer respond to their name being called. And it's something that clinically we see that during drug-induced sleep endoscopy. People are sort of you know talking and they're a little bit disinhibited in their uh, lighter degrees of sedation, but as they get a little bit more sedated, they lose consciousness, that's when they sort of drift off. They, of course, will start snoring. Typically, we'll have a little bit of airway obstruction. So again, having those changes that happen during natural sleep that we know occur because they've had a sleep study. And so the, the doses you're talking about, that's, that's typically lower than general anesthesia for normal surgery then? Absolutely. So propofol, of course, you know, it's used many you know, otolaryngology procedures. Uh, it's used, and of course, in other areas as well. It's a commonly used uh, medication, different doses uh, or different levels of sedation can be important for different kinds of procedures. And it turns out actually that the dose is very different for different patients. Factors like alcohol consumption can, can dramatically alter the dose that's required for someone to achieve uh, a given level of sedation. And so that's why what we typically do during the procedure itself is I ask the anesthesiologist to start very low in terms of the infusion rate and gradually increasing it. And it's a dialogue I'll often give some signals to them to, to increase slowly the, the infusion rate to achieve that loss of consciousness slowly and gradually rather than being in a big rush.
Um, and, you know, I've heard a little bit about a few other anesthetics like ketamine or dexmedetomidine. Any comments on those for this application? So I do have some. I'm not an expert in those uh, at all. They have not been specifically studied for looking at the pharyngeal changes. I think dexmedetomidine has been examined looking at some of the EEG waveforms, and it's a great medication for many uses, including in the intensive care unit, because what it does is uh, produces waveforms that are actually very similar to natural sleep. And so it's many ways compelling that we have something that on the EEG waveform looks similar to natural sleep. That's great. Problem is that, and this comes from the person who did the fundamental work on dexmedetomidine, a physician known as uh, Mervyn Mays, who was the chair of anesthesiology when I was at UC San Francisco. And he basically agreed with me that wondering whether dexmedetomidine would not have the decrease in muscle tone that we see with propofol and would not, in that way, would not mirror the changes that occur in natural sleep and therefore may not be the best option for drug-induced sleep endoscopy. Because although the brain is having something similar to natural sleep, the pharynx is not. Ketamine, again, it's not well studied. You get this dissociative anesthesia, which I don't really know that anyone knows exactly what it uh, does in the pharynx. I think that these are two medications that a lot of anesthesiologists that hear what we're doing with drug-induced endoscopy, they get really excited and want to use these medications because they're so useful in many anesthetic applications. But in terms of reproducing something in the pharynx that is close to natural sleep, I really don't think that they produce what we might be looking for in terms of understanding what's happening in the pharynx during natural sleep. And just practically speaking, are you typically doing this in the OR? So I do this in the OR. It can be done in endoscopy suites, which are the two settings that's most commonly done in the United States. I have colleagues in Europe that do it, for example, something equivalent to the Pack you or the, but but it can be done in a number of settings, but it does require some monitoring. You want to, I mean, I use you know, telemetry monitoring, uh, the typical EKG monitoring that's done, and of course the ability to administer supplemental oxygen if need be. I do it with someone from the anesthesia team, and basically it's a, a very safe knock on wood, um, but it's something that requires just having the standard precautions just in case something untoward would happen. And kind of building off the EKG comment and the supplemental oxygen, in terms of pre-procedural setup, um, any other considerations that you like to use um, prior to actually doing the endoscopy itself? So uh, a few things come to mind. Some are so silly that it's almost humorous, but you're going to be asking people to go to sleep with the assistance of sensation. So I actually have people use the restroom in the preoperative area. Uh, and then it, once we get to the room, we position patients in their most comfortable position. I often actually will examine people when they're on their side and will examine them supine. We you know, keep the room quiet, turn the lights off, make sure they have enough blankets to be warm enough, get the pillows somewhat similar to uh, what they might have at home and you know, have it be somewhat comfortable. Of course, I'm going to be putting a telescope in their nose, but we use a uh, topical anesthesia in the nose. And I actually uh, found it extremely helpful. And I didn't come up with this idea, but I give a anticholinergic agent to decrease their secretions. And something in the neighborhood of 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams, I use uh, glycopyrrolate. Uh, colleagues will sometimes use atropine. There definitely is some concern for some tachycardia. In younger, healthier patients, you're not as worried about that, but in older patients will use uh, lower doses. The idea is that decreasing the secretions will allow you to visualize the pharynx. There's a lot of uh, connection between 
various sources of inflammation in the pharynx that can occur with untreated obstructive sleep apnea. And so, you know, they'll have more secretions than the typical patient. And that can really interfere with what you're seeing uh, during drug induced sleep endoscopy. And I think it's pretty important and very helpful to do that. And uh, talking a little bit now about just in, in the procedure, how to systematically evaluate what you're lo- looking at in terms of just regions of obstruction um, and making sure you don't miss anything. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how you think about just walking through the exam itself? Sure. Well, so I don't take credit for this. I certainly, first of all, did not develop drug-induced sleep endoscopy. But what I saw gradually is on the first half of my career was that there was not really a common language to describe what we were seeing. There were a few different ways of classifying what showed up as the pattern of obstruction during drug-induced sleep endoscopy. But it wasn't really something, I mean, similar to like the TNM classification for cancer that's used pretty widely. There, there needs to be some common language to, to tell someone what I saw uh, during drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And so with a couple of European colleagues, Nico de Vries, and Vincent Hohenhorst uh, from Holland and Germany, respectively. We developed what's been called the VOTE classification, basically an acronym that refers to V for velum or palate, O for oropharynx lateral walls, including the tonsils, T for the tongue, and E for the epiglottis. And the idea is that each of these are, these are the four main structures. Of course, each of them are composed of various tissue types, muscle, fat, you know, other kinds of tissues as well as different muscles even you know, beyond that. So they're not just four things, but they're four structures that we would see. And basically they can all contribute to airway obstruction. And many of them will have different potential degrees of obstruction, ranging from none to partial airway obstruction to complete or almost complete obstruction. And they also can have different configurations for some of these structures. For example, the tongue pretty much just falls backwards. So that's gonna be an anterior, posterior, configuration of collapse. The oropharynx lateral walls, they will collapse on the side-to-side basis, so they're more this lateral collapse, but structures like the velum or the palate can have any one of anteroposterior, lateral, or a combination that we call concentric collapse. And so you can have this configuration and degree of obstruction related to these different structures summarized in the vote classification, which I think people saw there was a real need for something like this, and it's it's the most commonly used classification scheme out around, used around the world uh, currently. It's not the only one out there, um, but it's the one that's probably used most commonly. And you mentioned early on about some intra-procedural maneuvers we could do um, to kind of bring out different elements, or especially thinking about different procedures we can do. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those different maneuvers? Sure. So again, these are things that I've not developed myself, but I think that... Um, it, where we want to, especially if we're going to the operating room solely for the purpose of drug-induced sleep endoscopy, we want to collect as much information as we can. And so two things come to mind is the real keys to uh, learning more information than just, hey, sedate them and take a look. It's examining people in different body positions. And I mentioned briefly that I look, I usually start with people on their side when we perform drug-induced sleep endoscopy and they achieve their desired level of sedation, and then we just roll them on their back. And so we get an evaluation in both body positions because positional sleep apnea is so common. And what we've actually shown is it's that there are different mechanisms explaining sleep apnea 
on side versus uh, supine. And in some people, it makes a big difference in the severity of the sleep apnea. In some people, it doesn't, but often it makes a difference uh, in terms of what structures are playing a role in physically blocking the airway. And so I think that positional evaluation is pretty helpful. In addition, when it comes to a treatment option like an oral appliance, we will have the anesthesia team just you know, provide a, not the very aggressive jaw advancement that they do to rescue the airway, but advancement of neighborhood of five to eight millimeters, something like an oral appliance might offer. And to see at least qualitatively what kind of airway opening uh, is occurring. Some people, the airway opens up dramatically, even with a little bit of advancement. Some people, you can you know, advance the mandible across the room and it's not going to open the airway. And I think that has been, really been useful. There are a couple of limited studies looking at those kinds of things, but they, and they've shown that it does seem to mimic the changes that occur with oral appliance. And clinically, I've, I've certainly seen that, and I will do that for most patients where that's a potential option for them. Now that we've talked a bit about why we perform drug-induced sleep endoscopy and then the procedure itself, I just wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about how the information that we get from this procedure influences treatment and, and eventually patient outcomes. So could you speak a little bit um, to how drug-induced sleep endoscopy currently influences our management strategies? Sure. I remember back when I was a fellow in 2003, so we're talking the dark ages now. I think I heard my first talk on uh, drug-induced sleep endoscopy, and I was fascinated. And I had already seen, of course, the wide variation in surgical results that we mentioned earlier. And I thought, you know what? I'd be very curious to figure out how outcomes of procedures were associated with findings of this evaluation. We do it in a systematic way. And I laughed that it took me about 15 years. <laughs> but finally, we started, we started to get a better handle on this. And not that other people haven't tried. But the, one of the challenges has been people have generally done single-center studies which are always going to be a little bit limited on sample size. So it's going to make it difficult to tease out some of the nuances that are important in understanding how drug-induced sleep endoscopy findings may be associated with results of surgery. And honestly, there weren't that many studies. And the studies that were there, not only were they single center, but they often included a wide variety of procedures. And so you'll have some where most people got palate surgery, and then they maybe got another procedure, and then maybe got another procedure. And it didn't allow you, just because of the sample size, to be honest, it didn't allow you statistically to, to look at these things in more detail. And so we've now completed our second major you know, international multi-center study looking at the association between drug-induced sleep endoscopy findings and treatment outcomes. And what we did was a little bit ambitious. I'm, I'm very proud of the work of so many people. I don't mean to take credit for this, but I did you know, push things through and we've had some outstanding you know, former fellows who are now becoming real leaders in sleep surgery, but uh, basically looking at results, the first study looking at results of upper airway procedures, whether it's palate surgery, tongue-directed surgery, other kinds of procedures, and actually looking at pre-recorded drug-induced endoscopy videos and actually reviewing them with four surgeons in a way that we were blinded to the kind of surgery someone had, results of surgery, and doing it, developing, you know, having a plan for how we come up with consensus evaluations from what the, for what the drug induced endoscopy actually showed and you know, getting real statisticians involved and, and looking at some of these things to, to figure out what findings of drug induced endoscopy are really important. The first one being for upper airway surgery, the second one being for hypoglossal nerve stimulation and really getting a better handle on how we maybe should use drug induced endoscopy and not 
I guess, obsess on every little nuance of the vote classification because honestly, some things are just more important than others. And so, you know, the first study showed that what was bad was oropharyngeal lateral wall related obstruction. But the size of the throat we're caving in, we don't really have great surgeries to treat that well. Maybe maxillomandibular advancement, maybe some of these newer palate procedures might offer some benefits. But if you had either partial or complete obstruction related to the oropharyngeal lateral walls, you had about a 50% odds, your odds were about half of getting a successful result with surgery. And that was after controlling or adjusting for all different kinds of procedures and other endoscopy findings. That was the most striking finding from that study. Also, if you had complete tongue-related obstruction, that seemed to be more difficult to get good results. So some things that were maybe unfavorable findings, and it turns out that it may, even though we had about 275 study participants, so a fairly large study, it may have been that if you had complete tongue-related obstruction, then you needed to do some of these procedures that really remove part of the tongue, some of the more involved tongue resection procedures to get good results. But again, it really focusing us on some of the findings that seem to be most important from drug-induced lipidoscopy. And then the second study was presented at the Academy meeting uh, back in uh, fall of 2019. We literally just sent it off, but it basically what we presented uh, showed that complete oropharyngeal lateral wall obstruction also seemed to be a bad, uh, have poorer outcomes. Partial oropharyngeal lateral wall obstruction was actually still responded pretty well to hypoglossal nerve stimulation, whereas complete oropharyngeal lateral wall obstruction did not respond as well. But what really responded well was tongue-related obstruction. If you had complete tongue-related obstruction, and because that was probably a big part of your airway obstruction, you actually did really well with hypoglossal nerve stimulation because, as you can imagine, it moves the tongue forward. And it was really something that, again, one of these things that would only, it makes sense, that's the nice thing, but you, it took, so these pretty big studies from many people spending a ton of time getting things together and then reviewing all these videos in a blinded way. But that's really kind of thing that I think is, you know, gives us more of a foundation to say, this is where it really can help improve our procedure selection and especially improve our selection of patients and some who may not be as great for surgical candidates. The last thing I wanted to just ask you is if, if we just boil things down clinically speaking, how would you just kind of sum everything up in terms of advantages as well as, you know, we've obviously touched on some of these, but also just the disadvantages of or the shortcomings of drug-induced sleep endoscopy, where you think it maybe uh, doesn't offer us the information we need or where some of the missing links are. Could you just touch on that briefly? Sure. I mean, the disadvantages, number one, it's, it takes time. As a surgeon, you're going to the operating room. Right now, the reimbursement isn't great, but that's not a real key thing. But it really just takes your time. And so if you're going to do it on every single person, think about sleep surgery, it could be a real commitment, I guess. It's also expensive. I mean, while I mentioned the reimbursement for the surgeon isn't great, it's actually very expensive. Whether you're looking at hospital fees, anything down in the operating room is going to be very expensive. And that's something you need to be mindful of. I mean, we have to be smart in how we spend our healthcare dollars. And I think that's important for, uh, as a surgeon, and take care of someone, I really like to use all tests in some ways where it's going to be meaningful. And so I alluded to this before, but you want to use a test that is it's going to change management. So if someone comes in, for example, and they say, you know what, I've had you know three friends that had 
soft palate surgery being elevated great, and that's what I want to have. And you look in and you say, well, the palate's probably playing a role. I'm not too sure about something else going on, but the palate's probably playing a role. And that's really all they want to have done, at least as a first step. It's not really going to change your management. So you might do it at the same time you do a soft palate surgery, but you don't necessarily need to go to the operating room for a separate trip just to you know, to get to collect some information that's not necessarily going to be all that useful in changing what you do as a next step. Also, people have these huge tonsils. Again, you're, you're probably not going to do things dramatically different uh, than take out those tonsils. And tonsils themselves may interfere so much with the drug endoscopy that it may not be all that helpful in terms of giving you useful information. And so you might save uh, the drug endoscopy for those people who don't achieve great results with a procedure that includes taking out those large tonsils. I, I used the analogy years ago at uh, one of our International Surgical Sleep Society meetings that if you told me that wearing green shoes was associated with getting better results for sleep apnea surgery, I would tell people to wear green shoes. So that, you know, the idea that it has to be exactly like natural sleep, that's not as critical for me personally. I mean, the goal, of course, is to get something that's as close as we can reasonably, but I don't think we have to obsess on having everything exactly like natural sleep. Um, certainly don't have the patience to sit there for hours on end for someone to try to fall asleep naturally. I think that some of the disadvantages, of course, that it's not natural sleep may or may not matter because, again, if the findings are associated with outcomes of treatment, that's really what matters. And I think that for a long time, we did not have reasonable evidence to indicate that. But with a lot of people's hard work, I think that now we have a little bit more of an evidence basis and it's something that's relatively scientifically rigorous, honestly, compared to most things that we do in, in all of medicine. Uh, it, it was done fairly carefully with, with the right kind of uh, effort, I guess. Well, uh, Dr. Kazarian, I think this has been a really excellent discussion. Is there anything before I transition to the summary of the episode that you'd like to add um, based on what we've discussed? The only thing I might add is that as you, if you're considering starting to do this in your patients, the, the most important thing is to, to be patient. And so in terms of the sedation, telling the anesthesiologist not to be in a rush and not just give them the whole, give a patient the whole syringe full of propofol just so they get to that level of sedation because taking your time to allow people to get to that transition to unconsciousness is pretty important. And it will allow you to look at the airway. And when you have a chance to look at the airway, don't just look for 20 seconds. You can look for a few minutes because as we know during sleep, natural sleep, there are different things that happen during different stages. Not that we're getting different stages of sleep, but there are some parts of the night better and worse. And the same is true under sedation. And so you wanna make sure you're getting a pretty consistent pattern of what's causing their airway obstruction. Not that people have the same pattern all night, every night, but you wanna get something that's a pretty uh, good representation of what might be occurring. So it's a few minutes on their side, a few minutes on their back, you know, maybe not a few minutes, but at least a certain chunk of time with a mandible advancement, taking your time to do it because, you know, it's costing the patient quite a bit of money. So you might as well get really useful information. And that requires just taking your time and doing the evaluation. So in summary of today's episode, um, in patients with obstructive sleep apnea who cannot tolerate medical therapy with CPAP or patients with snoring that desire surgical management, um, Drug-induced sleep endoscopy is used to help characterize the nature of patient's disease um, with the recognition that really no two patients with OSA are the same and that the patterns of obstruction um, may vary significantly from patient to patient. And so this helps to address that reality. 
Um, practically speaking, the goal of drug-induced sleep endoscopy is to provide a dynamic assessment of patient's sleep, and therefore the intent is to replicate um, sleep to a, a reasonable degree through sedation, really at this transition point to unconsciousness. During the procedure itself, you want to systematically evaluate patients' regions of collapse, for which the vote classification provides significant utility and is widely used. The vote ca- classification stands for V, velum, O, oropharynx, T, tongue, and E, epiglottis. And lastly, drug-induced sleep endoscopy the information you get really helps to guide future management among the myriad of choices that you have and picking which ones might be best for the patient in front of you. Um, Dr. Kazirian, anything else you'd like to add to the summary? Just that it's been great to join you today and, and uh, really appreciate the chance to uh, share with people that have an interest in this area. Well, we really appreciate your time, so thank you. All right, and I will close now this episode with uh, just a few questions. So question number one, Overarchingly, why do we perform drug-induced sleep endoscopy? So there's a wide variety of clinical phenotypes and the underlying mechanisms of obstruction in patients with obstructive sleep apnea can vary considerably. And so drug-induced sleep endoscopy really helps to characterize individual patients' disorder during a dynamic assessment of, of their obstruction patterns uh, when considering surgical treatment for those who are unable to as- tolerate CPAP. Next question, how is normal sleep replicated during drug-induced sleep endoscopy? So normal sleep is replicated um, really through this idea of the transition to unconsciousness, which is identified during the procedure when the patient stopped responding to verbal stimuli. The anesthetic regimen itself varies often from institution to institution, but propofol has been a commonly studied anesthetic that can be administered either in boluses, target-controlled infusion, or continuous continuous rates at about half to maybe two-thirds of a typical general anesthetic rate. And recall also, as we mentioned, that dexmedetomidine likely has a limitation of not creating the same physiologic tonicity of up the upper airway when used for this purpose. And lastly, when performing drug-induced sleep endoscopy, what classification system is widely used to systematically evaluate regions of airway collapse? So the correct answer here is, of course, the VOTE classification, which stands for V, the velum, which includes the palate, O, oropharynx, includes the lateral wall and tonsils, T, tongue base, or tongue, and E is epiglottis. And recall, it's also important to consider the configuration of the collapse, um, being either anterior, posterior, lateral, or concentric, depending on the region um, you're discussing, and as well, the degree of collapse. So whether there's no obstruction, partial obstruction, near-complete obstruction, or, or complete obstruction. Well, that'll wrap things up for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.